Hey, Living Planet listeners, Charlie here. Living Planet is taking a short break. And while we're away, we're playing some of our favourite episodes from the past year. In the meantime, if you'd like to reach out to us, you can do so at any time by emailing us at livingplanet at dw.com. We'll get back to you when we return. Okay, here comes the episode. DW, Living Planet. Hello, welcome back to Living Planet. I'm Charlie Shield. Today on the show, I talk to a special guest. They expanded their carbon footprint and they got rich by keeping us poor. About colonialism, European dominance, an important spice, and why he prefers the term planetary crisis to the climate crisis. And I think that is where my perception of it differs completely from that of most Western experts. But it's also because this crisis is seen in a completely different way in the global South. Amitav Ghosh, renowned Indian author, coming up on Living Planet. What does colonialism have to do with climate change? That's the topic of today's conversation with writer Amitav Ghosh, winner of India's highest literary honour and the holder of two Lifetime Achievement Awards and four honorary doctorates. And in his most recent books, he's turned his lens on the climate crisis. The latest one, called The Nutmeg's Curse, Parables for a Planet in Crisis, was published in late 2021. I recently had the opportunity to speak with Amitav about some of his most recent work that delves into the origins of the climate emergency. He spoke to me on the line from New York. And I started off by asking him about why he thinks nutmeg, of all things, can help explain how the world became what it is today. The story of the nutmeg shows with exceptional clarity how we have uh, treated uh, the Earth's gifts, which are now called resources. Uh, the nutmeg tree is this amazing tree. It's a gift of a sort of volcanic ecology in Maluku, in the far east of Indonesia. And the nutmeg tree produces both the nut of a fruit, which is the nutmeg, and its outer covering, which is maize. So great was their value that in the 16th century, they attracted uh, the attention of Europeans who wanted to establish a monopoly uh, over the trade in spices. So beginning with the Portuguese, then with the Spanish, and then finally with the Dutch, this tiny archipelago came under intense pressure from the Dutch. And then finally the Dutch invaded and, uh, and basically exterminated the entire population. What we see in this period really is the, uh, how shall I say, the rising to dominance uh, of a certain kind of ideology of a certain way of looking at the planet and a way of extracting its resources in such a way that uh, these resources from being a blessing go to being a curse. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious, I'd never heard of the Banda Islands before and I'd certainly never learned about them in any history class or read about them in any research on this topic before. How did you discover this place and the story it held? It's a very, that's a very good question, uh, because actually, you know, this, uh, this extermination of the Bandanese is something which is completely silenced 
It's hardly written about, hardly spoken about. Even the histories of the Banda region of Maluku, even ethnographies barely mention it. And yet it's as clear an example as you could uh, ever expect to see uh, of an absolute genocide. You know, that's absolutely what happened. The Dutch went there, they basically exterminated the entire population. But, you know, this event has become so sort of uh, suppressed, if you like, that even I didn't really know anything about it before I went to the Banda Islands. And that, despite having studied, uh, you know, the history of the Indian Ocean for the decades. But it was only when I went to the Banda Islands that I got a clear sense of uh, what had actually happened. Uh, because, of course, the Bandanese themselves are the people who live there now, but also the few, uh, the descendants of the few Bandanese who managed to escape, they remember the event very, very well, and they commemorate it every year. They return to the Banda Islands. So I would say it's basically because the Bandanese themselves preserved this memory uh, that I was able to find out about it. Uh, but in, 20, uh, in 2016, I had this invitation from the Indonesian Ministry of Culture to visit Indonesia. And they asked me, where would you like to go? And I said, I want to go to the, I want to go to the Spice Islands. Uh, so they arranged this trip. And because of that, I was able to visit the Banda Islands. And, you know, that's where the story started. And so in your latest book, you refer to a crisis. And I'd like to know how you think about this current planetary climate crisis in relation to previous global crises. So thinking about its scale and its potential, considering there's always been upheaval, uncertainty and mayhem throughout history, how do you think this particular crisis is any different? Yes, that's a, uh, that's a good question, because uh, you're right. I mean, you know, history is anything but uh, sort of uh, a walk in the park. Uh, I mean, uh, history has always been filled with uh, crises of every kind. However, you know, I think there is only one previous moment in history when we see a massive disruption uh, in the global environment. And that, again, uh, goes back to the 17th century, when you have the uh, onset of the Little Ice Age. So there was a kind of what you might call a reverse greenhouse effect where there was such massive afforestation that it sucked a lot of carbon dioxide out of the air. Global mean temperatures uh, dropped by one degree. And that uh, resulted in absolute and utter mayhem across the planet all happening at the same time on a scale that had never happened before. So, uh, you know, for a period of about 100 years, there was massive disruption in the atmosphere. Though there have um, also been other periods when there have been uh, massive famines and so on. But uh, this, uh, just a one degree disruption in temperature caused uh, so much chaos uh, that I think it provides us with some pointers to what is uh, what lies ahead for us, because we are looking at a much bigger disruption, you know, a 1.5 degrees uh, rise, possible rise in uh, global mean temperatures, but it probably won't stop at 1.5. It's very likely to be uh, to hit uh, maybe maybe a two degree global mean temperature rise, and in that event, I think uh, you know uh, societies are actually much much more vulnerable. Uh, than, than we think, because the 
Little Ice Age, you know, it came about quite slowly to begin with. I mean, it started, you know, in the late 16th century and then really sort of peaked in the 17th. But what we are seeing is a very rapid, massive disruption in, in global climate. And uh, we can already see the fallout from it. We can see that our political systems are not able to cope with what's going on. If you just consider that uh, a nation that for like uh, centuries was regarded as the most stable and best governed nation on earth, which is uh, the United Kingdom, it just became so completely destabilized, uh, you know, going on from like 2010 onwards. And essentially, the, this uh, destabilization was linked to the question of migration. And migration is very much linked uh, to uh, environmental crises across the planet. If that's not the only thing that causes migra migration, then that is certainly one very important driver of migration. But more than that, I think this kind of migration has, uh, you know, it's... Uh, uh, it's led to all kinds of interconnected fears. And that's how we are seeing that, you know, human societies are not at all, as, uh, you know, philosophers have imagined. Human society is, 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 is not a very rational kind of entity. It's, uh, it's uh, subject to all kinds of uh, really psychotic and, uh, and neurotic forms of disorder. And we see increasingly that these are manifesting themselves everywhere. Mm -hmm. Right. And I want to go back a little bit to talk about the origins of climate change, which are often pinned to the Industrial Revolution, when fossil fuels started to become a central part of the global economy, fossil fuels being the single largest driver of carbon emissions. But as a starting point, you want us to go back further still to the role that colonialism has played in all this. Why? Well, uh, you know, I, uh, how shall I say? Many people have written about these subjects uh, in terms of capitalism, you know, so they sort of identify capitalism as the main driver of the global planetary crisis. They basically suggest that, you know, doing away with capitalism or you know, reforming capitalism or whatever would really solve the entire problem. And I don't see it like that at all. The identifiable phenomenon of capitalism goes back only to the 19th century, when we see these patterns, certain patterns of industry and economy taking shape. But already in the, uh, in the 17th century, you see the Dutch and the British uh, vying for control of resources, uh, such as uh, uh, such as the nutmeg or other spices or whatever happened to be the resource of the day, it comes under this violent contestation. So essentially, it begins with a certain kind of geopolitics. Now, from my point of view, the planetary crisis today is absolutely a geopolitical crisis. And I think that is where my perception of it differs completely from that of most Western experts. But it's also because this crisis is seen in a completely different way in the global south. And strangely, very few Westerners seem to be aware of this. Very few Westerners seem to know how people in the global south perceive the climate crisis. 
You know, and this is partly because almost all the writing on on the planetary crisis comes from very elite uh, Western universities. So, you know, if you talk to a Westerner and ask uh, ask them, what is this climate crisis? What's it about? They'll tell you it's some sort of techno-scientific phenomenon. It's a problem that's addressed by technology and science, and technology and science can, as it were, solve the problem or not solve the problem. It's all about carbon footprint. It's about fossil fuels. Fossil fuels are the main enemy, and they have to be defeated and so on. But if you go to the global south, anywhere in the global south, and ask people, uh, you know, what is this planetary crisis about? Uh, they'll, say to, uh, they'll say to you, it's because of the, the West's unbounded use uh, of fossil fuels. It's not fossil fuels as such. It's about the abuse of fossil fuels by the West. Uh, it's by the massive overconsumption of fossil fuels. And if you ask them, are you willing to shrink your carbon footprint? They'll say, why should we do it? Our carbon footprint in any case is, is a fraction of any Westerner's carbon footprint. They uh, expanded their carbon footprint and they got rich by keeping us poor and by dominating our countries and by dominating the world. So it's our turn now. This is, I can tell you that this is what you'll hear wherever you go, whether it's Indonesia, China, India, Africa, or whatever. I mean, especially with this war in Ukraine and so on, you can see both the centrality of fossil fuels and you can see the geopolitical dimension of this crisis. So remember, you know, the reason I call it the planetary crisis rather than the climate crisis is because, uh, you know, it's not just climate change. As Margaret Atwood said, it's everything change. And the clearest sign that our planetary crisis is fundamentally a geopolitical crisis is that the world is doing almost nothing to mitigate climate change. And at the same time, it's massively increased its spending on military expenditures of various kinds. It's a mistake to think that the world is not preparing for the disrupted planet of the future. It's just not preparing it, preparing for it by mitigation. That's all just as uh, Greta Thunberg rightly says. It's just blah, 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 which they uh, go on about. Fundamentally, they're preparing for war. We can see this across the planet. You're listening to Living Planet. My name is Charlie Shield. And on the show today, we're talking to Indian writer Amitav Ghosh. And I'd like to ask you about the concept of terraforming, which I think is quite a an instructive and an illustrative concept that you've written about to explain some of the things that you're talking about, um, the role of colonialism in shaping the planetary crisis that we are living through today. So could you explain what terraforming is exactly and where we're seeing it in the world most acutely? Well, terraforming is essentially a kind of geoengineering where you're really engineering landscapes to become something other than what they were. Uh, This process, again, starts within uh, Europe, basically, in the 17th century, uh, where you have a massive sort of uh, terraforming projects 
uh, in Holland and in uh, and in the Veneto region of Italy. But the really interesting part is that colonization is itself largely a project that hinges upon terra, uh, terraforming. So when the early British colonists uh, come to America, for example, I mean, they're appalled by the American landscape because uh, Native Americans lived on this landscape very beautifully. It was like a vast forest. It was like a vast garden for them, you know. It provided abundantly. And uh, early colonists were actually amazed by how healthy uh, Native Americans were. They lived off the land in the sense, they, a sense of they lived with the land. They made swamps productive. They made forests productive. And uh, they worked, as it were, with the landscape. But when, the, when Europeans arrived, uh, they were horrified by this landscape. They hated it. They thought, it, they thought the forests were sort of dark and evil. And they, most of all, they hated swamps. So you see this discourse very early on uh, amongst English colonists uh, in Northeastern America. They say straightforwardly that we want to remake this landscape to look like England, you know, to look like our home country. And that's what they did. They started these processes of deforestation. They started um, uh, damming rivers. Uh, they, start, they did a lot of other... I mean, basically, what their, uh, what their project was, was to make this uh, a new England. And that's why you have New England, uh, you know, uh, in Northeastern America. Uh, so essentially, when you start interfering with the landscape in that particular way, it destroys other pre-existing ways of life. So for the Native Americans, as soon as their forest is cut down, they have nothing. As soon as uh, the colonists introduce uh, new kinds of fauna, uh, livestock, that is cattle and pigs and so on, uh, into the landscape, they already do incredible damage to what was the pre-existing system. So the Native Americans actually, uh, in some of their early wars with colonists, they actually focus on killing livestock, on killing cattle, because they recognize that these cattle are the allies of the colonists in trying to destroy and remake the landscape. You know, And it's curious how that particular history extends into the present day. I mean, if you uh, think of the Amazon, what uh, Bolsonaro was really trying to do was exactly launch a, a war of this kind against indigenous people. And basically, a war of this kind because they want to open up Amazonia uh, to create cattle farms, to create soya monocultures and cattle farms, as if there's any great, <laughs> more need for meat in the world today. You know, humans have always interfered uh, with their landscapes. Hum uh, humans have always, as it were, uh, had an impact on the landscape. But in the past, uh, this impact would arise from interactions with the landscape so that both co-evolved, as it were. What's new with colonization is that new areas, new continents, are terraformed essentially to conform to European modes of life and to resemble the, the mother continent of the colonists. And that's what we see today that uh, these transformed landscapes are the ones that are coming unstuck the fastest. We see this in California, for example. We see this in parts of the Midwest. We see this uh, in uh, the Mississippi Delta. Uh, we see this in southeastern Australia. Again, a heavily terraformed landscape. 
you know, people always say, oh, climate change will hit uh, poor people first. And of course, there's a good deal of truth to that. But I think actually the dynamic that we are seeing is that climate change is affecting the most terraformed parts of the world the, the hardest. I mean, Italy, you know, it led the way with the Renaissance and so on and so on. And today, Italy is the most vulnerable, one of the most vulnerable parts of the world. Mm -hmm. And that brings me to a point that you made in your writing that I found interesting, where you said that, in a way, climate change could be viewed as the Earth's shrugging off of the forms that have been imposed on it over the past few centuries. So do you see colonialism and this attitude of the earth as something that we can continually extract from as something that's coming back to haunt the world or the global north in particular? Absolutely, in every possible way. Um, you know, uh, that is exactly what we see happening. Uh, well, let me just give you one example one of the many crises, I think the one that is least noticed, but is actually one of the most powerful dimensions of this planetary crisis that we're in, is the narcotics crisis. In America, opioids have become the leading cause of death, you know, over these last 10, 15 years. Mexico has become completely destabilized by opium. That's true of many countries in Latin America because of uh, the American so-called war on drugs and so on. Essentially, you know, <laughs> the thing about the opium poppy is that if you, uh, if you look at its history carefully, uh, you can see very much that this is a kind of thinking being. You know, it's defeated every human effort to control it. And uh, in the 19th century, the Dutch and the British who were meddling with this stuff didn't realize that they were opening Pandora's box, that they were dealing with an entity which is far more intelligent uh, than, any human, uh, than any human intelligence, you know? So, you know, these other beings have been on this planet forever. It's not just AI. Uh, there have been other extremely uh, sort of uh, clever entities uh, around, all around us. We just failed to recognize it. And now we are paying the price. Uh, and indigenous peoples have always understood this in every culture um, around the planet. But, I mean, let's say in Europe, peasants uh, understood this very, very well, which is why uh, European elites started burning peasant women, uh, you know, in the 17th, uh, 16th and 17th centuries by labeling them witches, you know, because ba basically they called them witches because these were people who dealt with herbal substances and so on, you know. So this is a very long-standing sort of war that uh, that European elites and now global elites uh, have waged against uh, ordinary people who, in fact, perfectly well understood that if you meddle with these things, there's going to be a price. And so after doing a whole lot of this research, what has been your main takeaway from investigating the link between climate change and colonialism if you could summarize for us the main switch in your thinking about this topic, what would that be? Uh, I, <laughs> when I started thinking about these issues, about climate and so on, to a great uh, degree, my, uh, my views were shaped by, uh, you know, the science and, and so on. 
So I, I, in the beginning, I thought of it really in those technocratic terms as well. But I think what has become so very clear to me now over, over all these years is that this is a historical problem. This is a geopolitical problem that ordinary people in the global south actually perceive it much more clearly than the technocrats do. This is a problem which is fundamentally like so many other uh, human problems. It's, uh, it's rooted in uh, histories of injustice. And uh, we will never be able to address these issues without taking those histories into account. Mm-hmm. Right. I've heard you advocate before not for hope and despair when talking about climate change and all of the challenges that come with that and that lie ahead of us, but instead for duty and what we should keep on doing. Why is that? What do you see as being the main distinction here? Well, I think this hope-despair dichotomy that especially Westerners like to make is a self-defeating thing. You know, I mean, you can find reasons if you're going to frame it in those terms. In fact, I think most people are going to be more despairing than hopeful, you know, but people people don't, haven't always framed problems in this way. I mean, even if uh, everything is going to come to an end, you still have a duty. You have a duty as a human being. You have a duty as as a parent. You have a duty as a, an, as a citizen to continue doing the right thing. And that's how I think we should frame it. We shouldn't frame it in terms of, uh, yes, uh, if you just do this, everything will be fine because everything is not going to be fine. We can now see that. It's perfectly clear that we're. Uh, this is just the beginning. Things are only going to get worse for a very long time. But we can't just let that uh, put us off. In Eastern ways of thinking, there is the idea of dharma. You do it because it's your duty. And I think that's how we have to approach it. Amitav, thank you so much for your time and for talking to us on Living Planet today. It's been fascinating speaking with you about your work. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. That was my conversation with writer Amitav Ghosh. His latest book is called The Nutmeg's Curse, Parables for a Planet in Crisis. And that wraps up the show for today. I do actually have one request for you before we go today, though, and that is to please participate in our Living Planet listener survey as we set out to reimagine the show, to make some tweaks here and there to make sure it's as informative, enjoyable and listenable as possible. So if you're keen to have your say, and I really hope you are, we'd love to hear from you. So you can either jump on our website, dw.com slash livingplanet, and click on the latest episode to find a link to the survey, or you can follow the survey link posted under our latest episodes on our YouTube channel, which is called DW Podcasts. We would really, really appreciate hearing from you. And you can also always email us at livingplanet at dw.com. Thank you so much. My name is Charlie Shield. Don't drink the milk. Weird name for a podcast, right? But it will all make sense, I promise. And no, it's not a podcast about milk. 
If you like historical intrigue, a bit of culture and a sprinkling of controversy, this one's for you. The arguments of homeopathy are based on like sand and the sand was pouring through my fingers. I'm Rachel Stewart and for this new podcast from DW, I'm travelling around Europe, tracing the backstories of objects, ideas and movements that you know well. But maybe you never really stopped to think how these things got to you. Condoms are known as French letters in the 19th century. Syphilis is the French disease, but in France it's the Italian disease. Join us to follow the strange journeys of these everyday things and see how they change shape as they're exported through time and around the world, by force, by chance or by choice. The less appealing the passport seems, the more dodgy stuff is probably going on. And yes, we're picking the juiciest stories, ones with a little mystery or drama along the way. We've got a lot to explore. Colonialism. Migration. Alternative medicine. Digital revolutions. Actual revolutions. And even some edible or rather drinkable stuff too. Woo, tangy. No need to pack your bags. Just subscribe to Don't Drink the Milk wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Andreas Becker. I'm Nicholas Martin. This is the story of the biggest cannabis scam ever. This is the story of Juicy Fields. I've lost 20k. I had 350,000 euros in the account. And the scam might just continue. We have owners that sometimes like to be flashy, hence why they like cannabis and crypto. Money, money green, you know, like everybody likes money. In this investigative podcast series, we entered a world that we never expected to find. It bears all the trademarks for Russian mafia. It's a fantasy. People want that the Russian is the very best. Stop fantasy. This is Cannabis Cowboys, a story about big dreams, juicy money and never-ending hype. Find Cannabis Cowboys wherever you get your podcasts.